This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, a couple of things really quick here. Uh, it has been made official, although we've talked about it for 24 hours now, if not more. Uh, Shane Doan to the Toronto Maple Leafs is now official. The Maple Leafs making the announcement. Uh, he will serve as a special advisor uh, to Toronto Maple Leafs general manager Brad Treeliving. Uh, will help with all day-to-day matters of hockey operations as assigned by the general manager. And Brad Treeliving, Treeliving rather, is uh, reunited uh, with someone that he worked with when he was with the Coyotes, and that is Shane Doan. Uh, Shane Doan, who, by the way, was Austin Matthews' favorite player growing up. Dun, 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 dun. Do with that what you will. Daniel Briere was also the other guy that he really liked, and uh, he's in Philadelphia, so don't get that rumor train started just yet. Uh, and he also liked watching the Zamboni. No uh, no definitive word whether they're getting the old Coyotes uh, Zamboni driver in the mix in Toronto as we continue to see what the Maple Leafs will do uh, to get Austin Matthews to sign a new contract. I just. Uh, joining me now uh, for comments on what might be next uh, for the Winnipeg Jets is my good friend Ken Weeb, uh, who's no stranger to this broadcast or others. Uh, Kenny, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. Tremendous, Jeff. Great to be with you. And yeah, what's what 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 could be better than a little drama in the Stanley Cup final, and maybe some off ice drama to go as well? And you know, nice yeah. little tie in with Shane Doan, the uh, or, you know original Jets 1.0 draft pick. Uh, I might add. Yes, that's uh, that's right. Very good. Always good to throw that in there as well. Um, but before I get to Winnipeg Jets, do you have a thought on what we've seen so far in this uh, in the Stanley Cup final? We all were slash wondering slash worrying whether this one was going to be a sweep. Uh, thankfully, uh, Matthew Kachuk, Carter Verhage, Sergei Bobrovsky had other ideas last night. Yeah, no doubt. It's been a very enjoyable series. Uh, obviously, I think that the Panthers got themselves in a whole lot of hot water with uh, a little bit of undisciplined play. Yes, some were ticky-tack calls. You can argue that all you want, but they just weren't playing like a team that had been there before, and Vegas was the total opposite. Always composed. You're not going to run them out of the rink. You're not going to intimidate them. So they sort of changed their plan for Game 3, and they got their skilled players a little bit more involved, and no, a couple of great stories. There, obviously, the, the the playoffs for Matthew Kachuk have been absolutely dynamite. But I love the fact that it was Carter Verhage that scored. I had a great chat with Verhage in December for my Weaves World Sunday column, and he's the type of player that all teams, including the one that I cover closest, is going to be looking for. A guy who was a fourth line guy playing, you know, nine to twelve minutes on a Stanley Cup champion, who was looking to spread his wings a little. And all of a sudden, he's got 40-plus tucks and is an important player in the Stanley Cup Finals. So uh, a little bit of symmetry there as well. In terms of Vegas, uh, obviously, they had a chance to put a real stranglehold on the series, Barbashev off the crossbar, all of those things. But if you look at how Vegas has responded yeah. to losses throughout these playoffs, I don't think it is a bit, not even a little bit of a concern. But obviously, it's a missed opportunity to go up 3 nothing. But... They've been so composed and they're so deep that I wouldn't give it a whole lot of thought, but I love the fact that the Panthers have made it a series because this is who they are. Their underdog story is well told and it was on display, you know, including, you know, Brandon Montour coming back to the bench and we know Kachuk left the game after yeah. a thunderous check from Winnipeg or Keegan Colasar. Uh, it's been an awesome series so far and I can't wait to see uh, the next chapter, but as you know, I'm a uh, I, I'm not in for president, as you and, and Elliot talked about. But I'd like to be on the board of directors <laughs> of the Ivan Barbashev fan club. I just want that uh, on public record uh, beyond the text message I sent you earlier. Trying to, and it was a great one. I'm not going to be the president, Merrick, but maybe the VP of the Ivan Barbashev uh, f- fan club here. I listen. I, I I just loved the move at the time, and as the season went on, and you know, Kelly Rudy's been all over this one too. Um, from from pretty much day one, uh, he's a big fan of Ivan Barbashev, and I'll tell you, man, like again, Gudis goes at him last night, and Barbashev's like, okay, fine, let's do this one more time. Like, I don't know how many, I don't know how many extra millions of dollars this playoff run has added to Ivan Barbashev's life, but there's there's a lot of millions of dollars here that are going to change Ivan Barbashev's life. And it's all because of, well, one, the player that he is, but two, uh, what he's been able to do with Vegas and the spot that he's been able to occupy. Like, I think it would be folly 
for us to consider that like he always looked for that one moment where your your financial life changed and one day we're going to look at you know the career earnings of Ivan Barbashev and we're going to be able to point to the moment that Radko Gudis took a run at him and Barbashev dropped him as the moment that Ivan Barbashev made his money, his millions of dollars, because that was the moment that everybody paid attention and realized that they hadn't already, that Barbashev's not just a good player, but also Barbashev is a physical, tough player as well. And it's the kind of guy that, you know, to be honest with you, Kenny, everyone's kind of looking for here. Yeah, every team in the NHL wants him, whether you're in a rebuild, like a certain team you and Elliot talked about on the podcast, uh, or a team that's contending. I mean, I, I was banging the drum for the Winnipeg Jets to be on in on Ivan Barbashev, and I think that he should be a high priority for their offseason, but they're going to have to get in line because the competition for his services is going to be endless. I'm yeah. fortunate to see him in the Central Division. Uh, covered that playoff run in 2019. Uh, covered the second-round series against Dallas. I mean, Bruce Cassidy knows how impactful he was in the Stanley Cup final. There's no doubt about that. And now he's happy to have him on his team. I think the crazy thing that people have forgotten, Jeff, because the you know the playoffs are now into their second month, Barbership was briefly knocked to the fourth line in the series against Winnipeg before being oh, yeah. reunited with Eichel and Marcheseau, uh when they were sort of shaking things up. I think it was around game three, two or three. So... This is a guy who's comfortable on any line. He gives you some physical presence, but he also has really good hands, and he's a smart player that gets involved and goes to the hard areas. That's why he's able to flourish with a guy like Jack Eichel. He has he is an elite thinker, even though he's looked at as this you know checking guy that can score. I mean, I, I love the way that he plays. He's kind of a bit of a throwback, and I think I, I agree, and I, and I couldn't agree more with you know Chicago being. It, it would be very smart for them to attach him. This is not a, this is not a you know security blanket situation or a protector, but to have a guy that can finish playing with a skilled player like a Jack Eichel and then potentially a Connor Bedard, I think that's a really smart smart yeah. call by you two, and I think he's going to definitely cash in. Whether it's you know whether it's five or six mil a year, you know take your pick. But this is a guy that. He's not just a checker. Last year, I think he was he career-high in goals last year. I think it was 31, but I don't have the numbers in front of me. But this is a guy that can produce and play in all of the important yeah. areas, and I love the way he's played throughout the entire playoffs. He's been excellent. Um, okay, so to the, to the reason we, uh, we, we have you on today, and that is the future of the Winnipeg Jets. Um, Boy, Kevin Sheveldayoff has some work uh, in front of him here. We've talked about this a couple of different times, but it feels like, you know, things are starting to heat up. Now, Elliot believes that everything starts with um, the decision and the situation and, you know, Connor Hallibuck in, in general. He believes that the whole thing starts with Connor Hallibuck, the netminder. But there's also decisions on Shafley, on Wheeler, and I think it's safe to say that Pierre-Luc Dubois will not be starting next season as a member of the Winnipeg Jets. Now, we all know about the Montreal uh, situation. I put out there yesterday that I believe he would be warm uh, to the Rangers and the Minnesota Wild on the podcast we recorded last night. Um, there's a couple of other teams that I'm, I'm wondering about with Dubois, uh, most notably the Dallas Stars and the Tampa Bay Lightning. I do wonder about Carolina uh, as well with Dubois, but what's the, what's the word around Dubois' camp lately? Yeah, no doubt, Jeff. Uh, the breadcrumbs are, 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 I think, where they're going to be picked up shortly here for sure. Uh, two other ones that I like. I love your list. Uh, I also like Boston as a potential for him, and I also like L.A. This is a guy who has some interest in fashion. Um, you know, I remember talking to him at the end of the trip in the California swing. He had a chance to sit and see LeBron live uh, in Tinseltown. I think there would be some appeal there. And to me, I know it would be interesting juggle on the, you know, right in the immediate future because they need to fill the goalie position. But Kopitar is one year out, I think, from UFA status. And, man, if you're L.A. and you could bring in Dubois for one year uh, to be mentored by someone like Kopitar, someone who knows a thing or two about the power forward game but could maybe help on the consistency side and the further you know push towards being a two-way player that we saw unfold this year, I could see them as a really good fit. 
yeah, it's safe to say he's not going to be in Winnipeg. I think there's – Luke has always publicly said he hadn't decided, but I think it's pretty apparent. Uh, these things don't just magically come out there. Obviously, Pat Brisson, one of the most respected agents in the business, and as I wrote at sportsat.ca, I think it's important in this case, given the circumstances that they get Brisson involved, because without leverage, the Jets aren't going to be able to get a big package if it's Montreal or bust. And I've been with you from the very beginning, Jeff. I know there is – a time where Pierre-Luc Dubois wants to play for the Canadians, but I don't think that's his only option. And this week's developments with Cole Caulfield, I mean, if Pierre-Luc Dubois, we know, has wanted to get a contract in the $9 million range, and he's probably not going to get that with Montreal the way this week has gone. So uh, I think that we're inching towards a resolution, and, you know, it's going to be a very busy three weeks for Kevin Schimmel-Dayoff because there's a legit possibility Mm -hmm. that all four of those players you mentioned – are going to have a new address next year. It's not a guarantee, but there's a better than average chance. And uh, I agree with Elliot. I mean, I've said this for the last two months too. It starts with Hellebuck. Are the Jets going to be willing to go nine and a half or 10 million on a long-term deal? And secondly, does Hellebuck want to stick around or does he want to go somewhere else? I mean, that's, that's the other part of the equation. He'd be the top dog on the goalie market. Well, one more thing about Pierre-Luc Dubois, and I always have to remind myself of something. There's a, like, there's a couple of different sayings that I have sort of written down and, and scattered all over my office here at, uh, at the, the Merrick Broadcasting Center here, blah, 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 yeah. blah, which is actually just my basement. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old saying from medical school, and it goes like this. Um, when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. When you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras, which means to, to young doctors, uh, you know, consider the most likely possibility first before you go for an exotic uh, possibility for a <laughs> diagnosis. So maybe I'm overthinking here. Maybe I'm with all these other teams that I'm wondering about. I, I always got to catch myself and say, Merrick, stop thinking zebras. Start thinking horses. And the horse in this one is the Montreal Canadiens. We all know what happened last year at the draft and the comments from his, from his agent, Pat Brisson, uh, from CAA, as, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I am with you, and I, I think we're both on the same page here, Kenny, that Montreal isn't the only... It's not like Montreal or bust, but that is very much number one. That is the horse, and everybody else is the, the zebra in the conversation. Yeah, bang on. I love, love the saying. and Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who grew up in La Belle Provence. So is there going to be appeal to be a Francophone star in that market playing for someone like Marty St. Louis? Of course there would be. But Jeff, the other part of that equation is what's attached to it and the, and the pressure on a Francophone potential star player uh, in that market. So, you know, Pierre-Luc Dubois is a young guy. He's going to turn 24 this month or 25. Sorry. Um, he's a, a, a budding player. He's, he's shown great promise, career high in points. Mm-hmm. The last two years, he's been over a point a game player at points and then faded a bit down the stretch. But I don't think that's, that, that's because he doesn't have the potential. I think he still has the potential to be a 75, 80-point player. So for him, he's going to have to decide where he wants to be and then continue to work hard at it. You know, Arpon Basu, great job with the report saying that maybe it's going to be a sign-and-trade. The only way you can get eight years is if you do something similar to what happened with Matthew Kachuk last year. Um, And again, let's not forget Kachuk was coming off, I think, a 100-plus point season. Dubois was 63, so the return won't be quite as big. But the Jets don't want to rebuild. They want to retool. They're going to want some help currently along with some future assets. So that's where it gets a little bit sticky for Kevin Schimmeldayoff, which is why having Brisson involved and trying to create some leverage and other teams getting into a bit of a bidding war would be beneficial to the Jets. Yeah. Otherwise, Montreal saying, why would we give you Kirby Doc? We can have Doc and Dubois if we wait one year. And let's not forget the other part of this, Jeff. For It's also beneficial for Brisson and his client. If you want to raise the AAV, get more teams involved. I mean, we can't just say, oh, this is just about finding where Dubois wants to be. It's also with the, to the benefit of the client yeah. to try to raise the salary as well. Excellent points. Um, real quick, uh, a thought on Mark Shifley. You know, you mentioned the Boston Bruins potentially uh, with Pierre-Luc Dubois. I can kind of see the same thing here with, uh, with Mark Shifley, Boston Bruins. Quick, we got like 30 seconds. 
Yeah, no problem. I think the Bruins are a great fit. I, I wrote earlier, I think the Carolina Hurricanes would be a great fit also. They, you know, Obviously, scoring was one of the downfalls in the playoffs. And yes, we know they were without Svechnikov and Pacioretty. But yeah. I think a guy like Rod Brindamore would be almost a perfect coach for Mark Scheifele, a guy that could maybe push him in that two-way game, 200-foot game element, and he gives him the offense. But, man, if you're Boston... Yes, you have to be looking at a guy like Shifley. You could fit him into the culture. He can just go there and play well and, you know, play him with Marchand if you want, maybe play him with Taylor Hall. I think it'd be a great fit. My sleeper for Shifley, though, Jeff, and you've been talking about their team a lot, the Pittsburgh Penguins, to me, also make a lot of sense for Mark Shifley. Established leadership core, a team that wants to win now, a splashy move for Dubas right out of the gate. Now, getting a long-term extension yeah. would be tricky, but on the one year at six mil, you can find a way to make it happen. Interesting. We got to hustle. Ken, always full value. Thanks as always, pal. My pleasure. Have a great weekend, Jeff. Take care, my man. Ken Weeb from Sportsnet, Hour 2 of the Merrick Show. Boudreaux, fun, next. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, you will hear from Bruce Boudreaux, former NHL coach, now analyst uh, with NHL Network, a tour around the uh, around the playoffs, specifically eyes on uh, the Florida Panthers and the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, game 4 on the horizon Saturday, uh, and we will get a Game 5, thankfully, uh, due to Carter Verhage uh, last night in overtime. Uh, the Florida Panthers making this one a series. Uh, in the meantime, someone I've wanted to have on the program here for a, for a while. He is a, a former NHL agent, uh, still a consultant with Cortex as well. He is Anton Thun, and he joins me now. Anton, how are you? You're on your way to the uh, Canadian Open, I understand, or maybe already I, there. No, you know what? I, I am going there shortly. I, uh, I After this is over, I'm going to hop in the car and head on over to Oakdale. Nice. Awesome. Well, it's uh, it's great to hear your voice again. Great to catch up. Um, Thank you. There's, there's a couple of things, and, and, and there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a few things that I want to get into with you. Um, the NHL Players Association has a new executive director. Uh, I am curious about, you know, how, uh, how that resonates uh, and, you know, what you think of his style, whether it's uh, the right style for this union at this time. Um, but but inter- something interesting popped up on the National Post uh, yesterday. Christopher Nardi writing a piece, and you know I've gone back and, and read it a couple of times. You can sharpen the pencil on it a lot better than I can. There is something here, and the CRA has taken exception with a number of Blue Jays players, most notably Jose Bautista, Russell Martin, and Josh Donaldson, all former Blue Jays players, um, for using what is referred to as a retirement compensation agreement so this is a pension plan that is established through an employer uh, essentially for um for athletes uh, high paid athletes to um to keep as much money in their pockets as possible most specifically uh american born athletes um is this something that because we we don't talk necessarily a lot about you know how players are able to 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 use and, and manipulate tax structures to keep as much money in their jeans as possible. Is this sort of a, an industry standard that this isn't exclusive to baseball? Uh, this uh, this this type of RCA uh, type pension plan would this be used by hockey players as well? Yes, and and I think you indicated that it was uh, probably mostly used by Americans, but used by all foreign players and. Um, if I recall correctly, was probably first introduced into uh, the marketplace when the Raptors first came into the NBA because you had uh, had to entice American basketball players to come north, and the salaries of you know those base, uh, basketball players are significantly higher than hockey players, and I believe it was probably MLSE, and if it wasn't MLSE, it would have definitely been you know Rogers and the Blue Jays uh, who uh, structured these types of very complicated um, pension plans uh, to um, try to induce players to come play in Canada uh, by deferring a lot of taxes. And uh, but it's been used by more than Americans. It's it's uh, I know it's been used by European hockey players as well because there are tax advantages that they have as well. And uh, so all 
all basically foreign-born athletes who are making significant sums um, can use this. Uh, having said that, the the original purpose of it wasn't for athletes. The original purpose of it was for long-standing employees um, of corporations that were, you know, high net worth earners who, based on the limits that are allowed in registered pension plans and RRSPs here in Canada, at you know, 18% of your income uh, to a maximum of say $25,000, if you're you know, a million dollar earner or a $5 million earner as the head of RBC, um, you know, putting $25,000 a year in your pension plan really doesn't give you the same benefit um, when you retire that you can actually have a retirement based on having earned $5 million a year. So that was the original purpose. So, so essentially, this is a way to lure uh, American CEOs to Canada for, for just to put it in sort of layman's terms to get to get highly compensated CEOs in, into Canada. And this is this is where they can park some of their money. Yeah, well, quite honestly, it works for anybody, uh, including Canadians, for that matter, because it's not subject to, you know, Canadians who believe that they're going to be in a lower tax bracket when they retire can also contribute to it. It's not a unique uh, foreign-based uh, plan, but what it does do is it allows foreigners to come here to, to sort of over-contribute to their retirement plans while they're here right. uh, and then pay tax on that not at the 52 or 53% tax rate here, but at the tax rate that they'll be in when they retire, which could be in Florida or, or, or it could be in Sweden for that matter. Uh, so it actually works for anybody probably over $150,000 of income. But it's a complicated so, process. Um, Sorry, yeah. So anyway, it's a, it's a complicated process. It requires significant legal documents. It requires um, your employer to basically agree to doing it. Um, you can't just do it yourself. You have to have an employer that's willing to do it and create these legal documents and these complicated tax structures. And then uh, at the end of the day, the issue with Bautista and Martin and Donaldson are it's a complicated structure and you have to follow the rules. And what CRA is alleging in both instances is that they're really not following the rules for retired compensation arrangements. Is it the structure of the retirement compensation agreement itself, or is it the level of compensation, which is the issue? Namely, hold on a second here. 16 million is like a couple of million. Okay. Maybe we're fine with that, but 16 is a, is a line yeah. path, which we won't go. Well, and I think quite honestly, uh, and I, I don't know the actual facts of each case, but having read the articles that have been published in the, in the last couple of days, the issues to me are, are two or threefold. Uh, in Bautista's case, the CRA is actually basically saying that the legal structure that was created and the way that they use the legal structure actually doesn't make it an RCA. It doesn't qualify under the definition in the income tax as an RCA, and as a result, the contributions are not appropriate. Okay, in Donaldson's case and in Martin's case, what they're basically uh, saying is, yes, we agree that the RCA that you structured is appropriate and that you have a valid RCA in contrast to Bautista, where they're saying you don't have a valid RCA. And in the case of Donaldson and, and Martin, what they're contesting is the amount of the contributions that they made. And the issue with uh, Martin and Donaldson is that they both um, didn't report as Canadian-based income all of their income. They are residents, I believe, of the United States, even though Martin's a Canadian citizen, uh, for tax purposes rather than a Canadian resident. And uh, so out of their, let's say, $100 of income, and obviously they earned a lot more than that, they only allocated 60% or actually 40% of their income based on number of days played in Canada to Canadian income tax. And they allocated 60% to foreign income tax. What they did, I believe, and I stand to be corrected, on the RCA is they based their contributions to this pension plan based on 100% of their income rather than 40%. And that's where the dispute is. 
And so the lawyers for Martin and Donaldson are alleging that because the RCA is a Canadian-based uh, structure and format, they're allowed to to contribute to the plan as if they earned 100 cents. Whereas RCA is saying, if you're only going to claim 40% in income tax, uh, 40% of your income as income taxable here in Canada, that's all you can, you know, that's the, the way the calculation has to be in terms of the, the maximum amount that you're able to contribute. So it's very complicated. Um, and at the end of the day, when I read stories, and, and, and I, I'm very familiar with RCAs because I've investigated it in the past, but the scary thing as soon as you start reading about actuaries creating numbers based on calculations, um, the, the, uh, the, the most complicated people in the world that I've, I've ever talked to about numbers are actuaries are easy to talk to right okay lawyers are easy to talk to mm-hmm. when you start getting into calculations by actuaries that's like the 10th level of mathematics and what? it just blows your mind whenever uh whenever i i know this intimately because whenever there is a lockout and unfortunately i've had to cover a couple of them uh, i can stick with the conversation until it gets to pensions and then when you start talking to actuaries all of a sudden the conversation just flies way way over my head and i i end up saying things like talk to me like i'm seven years old and start at the yes. beginning and, and explain this to me now let me let me bring this into the into the world of hockey here anton with with sure. anton fun let me bring this into the world of hockey so this is sort of sent a, a little bit for people that have read the piece in the national post and have had the conversation about it maybe hearing this for the first time right now might look at this and say okay well this is a baseball dispute between you know the uh the cra and a couple of baseball players and they're trying to get as as, as much tax out of them uh as they can but this will have depending on how this this case sorts out you know this could have a really significant effect on canadian hockey teams and their ability to lure uh, high-priced talent from the United States, uh, from Europe as well. Do you think something like this is, do you think this is something essentially, A, that whether you're Marty Walsh, the new executive director, whether you're Player X from Allentown, Pennsylvania, or Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, playing in the NHL should be have should have a, a close look at. And if you're uh, owner slash manager slash team president of an NHL team, you're following this one really closely. Well, I think everybody should follow it closely in 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 all of those aspects. So, from an ownership standpoint, definitely you follow it closely. From a uh, NHLPA. Yes, definitely Marty Walsh should be following it closely. And if you're an athlete or an agent of an athlete, you should be following it closely. The one thing that this article hasn't said, uh, so first and foremost, the CRA is not denying that RCAs can be utilized by athletes. So I don't think that that should be read into this article. They are basically saying it's a legitimate vehicle. Okay, but it has certain requirements and those requirements have to be followed. And I think what's happened in the past, based on uh, on my discussions with accountants and financial planners and representatives of, of you know, high net worth individual players, is they've they've gotten to a point where. I think you can be too aggressive in using this, okay? And the RCA is not unlimited in terms of contributions. There is a formula, again, going back to the comment, an actuarial formula that exists, which is debatable as to what that formula is and what CRA allows and doesn't allow. And I believe that certain financial planners and accountants have taken very, very aggressive approaches to stashing a lot of money into these RTAs. So let's use a player that's making Jose Bautista. Okay, he was making thirteen million or seventeen million dollars a year in his days with the Blue Jays. Not at the beginning, uh, but in his final three or four years. And the issue that we're talking about is a $16 million um, issue, which is $4 million a year uh, for the years that are allegedly under review. And he was making an average of about $15 million a year. 
Okay. So I'm not even sure that the full amounts of the contributions may be challenged. It might just be part of that. Okay. Uh, and, and part of the issue is how he withdrew the money as well. And there are rules that you have to abide by in terms of how you withdrew the money. So um, I think part of what I'm reading is there some statements by his representatives why he withdrew the money at a particular point in time and how he withdrew the money. When I read those statements, Anton, we're going to hold hold on a second, Anton. We're going to let's let's pot Anton down. We're going to give him a, a, a buzz back. We have kind of a, a communication issue there. We'll get Anton in a better cell zone there. But what what we're talking about here is um, the, these RCAs, uh, which are called retirement compensation agreements. I mean, a couple of them are being challenged uh, by Canada Revenue uh, with Jose Bautista, former Jay Russell Martin, and, and Josh Donaldson as well. And where Canadian hockey teams and hockey fans and hockey players and agents and owners and managers uh, should be following this case closely is uh, this is something that is very much used by hockey players in a lot of ways to offset advantages that other teams have who play in, to be blunt, no tax states. There's a difference between playing and being compensated in Tampa than playing in Toronto. And we saw that play itself out with the Stephen Stamkos uh, situation. There are advantages that you enjoy if you're playing in Nashville that you will not enjoy if you play in Montreal. We do have Anton back. Sorry, Anton, your your phone was kind of cutting in and out a little bit. If you just mm-hmm, pick up, we not a thought, problem. That would be great. Yeah, so the, I'm not sure where we disconnected, but. Um, some of the statements that have been made publicly in, in, in the articles seem to me to be almost incriminating. It's, it's like listening to Trump incriminate himself. Okay. Well, we did it for these reasons and, 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 and I'm reading why they did it. And it seems to me that the reasons and the way they did it doesn't actually comply with the RCA trust provisions, uh, based on, uh, as I know them. So I would suggest that whoever his representatives are, actually, they should not talk about it because what they're saying is almost feeding into the CRE narrative. Right. So to, to take this in, 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 into hockey here one more time, and, and I want to sort of right. pull this away away from the, the story itself, but sort of talk about, you know, the, the nature of tax structures and the nature of players making decisions. Now, I want to frame this one specific way. I think the average length uh, for an a, for a, for an average NHLer is about four years. I mean, certainly there are some that only play one season. There are some that play fifteen seasons. But I think the average is somewhere around four years. So, as a hockey player, you have on average that amount of time to make the most amount of money you'll probably make your entire life to set yourself up, to set your family up. And hopefully, you know, really take care of your extended family as well. So you have a very small window to make what could be a large sum of money. So your decisions in a lot of ways are less going to be about, oh, I'm chasing my dream. I grew up a Montreal Canadiens fan or, wow, I, I grew up in the Oilers glory era. And I've always dreamed about putting that jersey o- over my over my head and around my shoulders. And that's well and good. But the business of hockey being that I'm trying to, to get as much money in my jeans here as possible, um, you can do that a lot easier when you play in no-tax states. And we hear this a lot. We saw this play itself out with the Stephen Stamkos situation. Uh, when he had a decision between Toronto and Tampa, he chose Tampa. We know the level of present, provincial taxation in Quebec, for example. If you play for the Montreal Canadiens, like any other citizen there, is somewhere around 52 to 53%. We know what it is across the rest of Canada as well. Question for you, this is a hypothetical, and maybe these conversations have been had, maybe you've been part of them, I'm not sure. Do you think that we're at a place right now in the NHL, 32 teams, some are are no-tax states, and we think of, like, look, the Stanley Cup final, this is a no-tax state final. It's Florida and, and Vegas. Like, these are two prime locations for hockey players to decide to apply their trade. No state tax. Do you think that there will perhaps ever be the conversation between the NHL and the Players Association around competitive disadvantages from Canadian teams who have a higher rate of taxation than their American counterparts? Uh, I, I think those conversations have probably taken place. It's a very, very complicated conversation because it's it's not limited to just the tax impact. It's you know exchange rates on U.S. dollars versus Canadian dollars. It's cost of living in different cities. Um, 
and that's just from the financial standpoint. So it's a very complicated issue. And but yes, I, I, I think the RCAs are going to be an issue going forward. That said, again, going to my point, they're not dis- they haven't been disallowed. You just have to follow the structure properly and contribute to the reasonable amounts. So they will continue to exist, and proper tax planning and proper accountants and so on and so forth will continue to be able to structure these going forward within the limits of the law. And uh, if you don't, if you don't get too aggressive, you're going to be able to use them. So, so I, I don't think they're going by the way of the dinosaur. I think we're going to get clarity right. uh, on these decisions in terms of how people have screwed up in terms of structuring these deals or factually how they've taken money out of them when they shouldn't be taking money out, which might be the case in Jose Bautista's case, based on what I'm reading and the limits that you can contribute. Yeah. So that, you know, and, and so it, it, it is a factor. I don't think it's going to be a dominant factor in any way, shape or form going forward, because I don't believe they're going to be disallowed mm-hmm. as long as you follow the rules. And so the landscape that we have today will continue to exist in a very complicated way with a lot of other factors coming into play. Um, But we also have to understand that, you know, sometimes the management of teams is a major factor in how well a team is managed or how poor a team is managed is a, uh, an attractive factor or a factor that goes against the teams uh, doing well. And over the last number of years, the Canadian clubs, in contrast to a limited number of clubs in the southern United States, um, have not been managed very well. And and having said that, if you look at uh, if you look at Vegas and Florida, they're not in the Stanley Cup Finals because of the tax rate. They're in the Stanley Cup Finals because they're two damn good hockey teams, and their management teams have put together very, very competitive teams that can compete not only in the regular season, but in the playoffs. So I give Bill Zito credit. I give uh, George McPhee and Kelly McCrimmon credit. And that's the reason why they're in the finals. It has nothing to do with their tax rates. But but hang on, let me let me just push back on that a little bit. But I mean, there there is there is a lure to playing in these markets. Like when we look at, and I remember you know Brian Burke would always tell me this. He'd say like, look Jeff, if you if uh, if you could ever look at some of the, the the contracts that NHL players have, even Canadian players, and have a look at you know those that have no trade lists. Like a lot of them have all the Canadian teams on it. Um, and a large part of that is because of the because of the tax situation. And my my, my question is going back to the going going back to the uh, to going back to the point that you made a couple of seconds ago about RCAs and they'll continue to exist. Is, is there based on your experience with players um, playing in Canada, um, setting up RCAs, the the reasonable amount that you that you talk about? Because I think we all understand that. And that's the the situation with Bautista. Does the quote unquote reasonable amount offset the benefits that you can get by playing in Tennessee or Nevada or Texas or Florida? Does it, is it, does it do enough to, to sort of level that playing field or is there still an advantage to playing stateside financially? There, there's st- always still going to be an advantage to play stateside. Okay. Um, and, and there are, and there are uh, a variety of advantages of advantages or disadvantages that every athlete is going to look to. Uh, but the reality of it is not all athletes can play in southern states that have no no tax uh, uh, no, no yep. state taxes. There's a limit to the number of players and the number of teams that you have in those jurisdictions. Phoenix is a very, very low tax rate. I don't see any anybody jumping up and down to get down to Phoenix at this point in time. So it, it's it, there's multiple issues to this question about where players want to play. And it and and taxes are definitely one factor. Weather is definitely one factor. Where your wife from is definitely one factor. Where where you're from is definitely one factor. The management of the team is a factor. Can we win is a factor. So there are probably a, a checklist of twenty or thirty different factors that come into play uh, in various ways, shapes, or forms based on the priorities of the players. And you know the Leafs are going to go through this whole dynamics with Austin Matthews um, in the next 12 months. And we're going to find out which of those factors, you know, weigh the most in his mind. Is it the tax rate? Is it the weather? 
Is it the ability to win? Is it the love in the dressing room? I don't know. We're going to find out. Um, going back to, I'm going to go back in the way back machine here because I, I, I used to love listening with you, uh, listening to you on with, uh, with Bob McCowan on primetime, talking about all these issues, um, back in 0405 and the, uh, the, the great lockout that, uh, that cost Bob Goodenow's job, uh, cost the players, uh, salary cap, uh, provided caught certainty and franchise values skyrocketed, et cetera, et cetera. We all know what, what happened afterwards. Um, I'm curious from a player's point of view, once salaries were, capped and we all know this is a a a triple cap league now um what became the most important thing for a player coming out of the 0405 lockout where the salary cap and i'm stunned to say it now the upper limit was 39 the lower limit was 21 and i even remember david poyle saying how am i even going to get to 21 with the nashville predators and didn't seem like that was very long ago but those were the economics of it at the day um what changed for players did anything change for players once upon a time it was i'm going to go where i can make the most money what became really important for players after that lockout you know what quite honestly i i don't think anything changed for the players the the, the numbers changed um during that lockout uh, salaries of the, as you recall were rolled back at that point in time but the dynamics of where to play and all the issues that i i just mentioned the 20 or 30 issues they're exactly the same as they were before okay and and part of that is simply because the, even even the high-end players aren't even remotely close to that 20 percent of the cap Okay, um, so salaries have been driven down. Um, the distribution of, of HRR, hockey-related revenues, has been redistributed in favor of the owners in contrast to what it was in 2005. And then, quite honestly, under the, the fair regime in 2012, was redistributed even further towards the owners because um, the, the CBA in 2005 had a mechanism that allowed the um, the, the revenue share to increase from 50 to 57 percent, which it did over that period of t- seven years. And then when yeah. the new CBA came out in 2012, as negotiated by the the uh, the new CBA or new NHLPA management uh, led by Don Fair, it reduced down to 50 percent again. Right, and so. There's been a redistribution of wealth under the uh, last few regimes, and, uh, and and that's happened not only in hockey, but it's also happened in basketball, where they've got a, a different term, basketball-related revenues, uh, or BRI, or something like yeah. that. Um, but we're now at 50-50, and the issue is, is that, is that uh, you know, movable? Uh, there are certain things that are not included in HRR, and there are certain things that have not been included in, in basketball-related revenues in basketball either, and that's a moving target. And uh, you know, part of the issue is how, do, how, how uh, does Marty uh, Walsh um, you know, power up the, the Players Association, which historically has been difficult to do, to identify those issues as being significant to them and, uh, you know, show a strong willingness to try to uh, recover some of that. Let, let me ask you that because, um, you know, Marty Walsh is a new executive director, as, as, you, as you mentioned. I think we're all curious to see, okay, what are the, uh, you know, the, the moments where... Uh, he comes into conflict with NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman. You know, what are the what are the decisions? What are the issues? Um, what are some of the things? We've already seen one battleground already. Um, Marty Walsh saying we're not touching our escrow payments, and Gary Bettman says, "Well, we're not moving the salary cap up any more than than a million dollars." And that was the first sort of opening salvo. No one's in trenches here yet. No one's really dug in on on huge issues. But where do you see with Marty Walsh here? Where do you see the battleground? issues as we lead up to dare i say the expiration of another cba which isn't coming for a few years but but still it's always got to be in the back of everyone's mind sure sure um well yeah i I wouldn't necessarily describe it as battleground issues i think they're just simply negotiation issues and um i think the point that i just made previously before you asked that question in terms of um you know, growing the game and uh, who gets the growth of that game, which has been uh, modified uh, over the, the you know the last 20 years from uh, most of the growth of the game through revenue generation going to the players prior to 2005, 
and it's swinging back, that pendulum swinging back and uh, being much more in favor of, of the owners. Um, there are certain things that are not included in HRR, and I, I believe that those things um, are, are going to be addressed. Um, you know, the, there's a huge amount of money that the players, that actually gets carved out of the players 50%, which includes their um, their pension plans and their health benefits and so on and so forth, which in normal industry are typically either paid for by the employer or, or, or a shared expense. And that's a $300 million amount, or at least it was in, in yeah. past years. It's probably higher than that. And uh, believe it or not, if I recall correctly, uh, the bonuses that are paid out to the playoff champions actually is paid for by the players out of their out of their 50 percent. So there's a carve out there. And then you get into other issues in terms of, you know, uh, can you allocate some of the growth of the league to some of the to, to HRR as well? And one of the things that is not included in HRR that you're fully aware of are expansion fees. Right. So. The owners uh, in the last six years have earned $1.15 billion in expansion fees, and the players got nothing of that. Now, the owner's take will be, well, we just gave you another 50 NHL jobs, so you should be really happy. Um, But you're not getting any of our expansion fees. And, you know, the the way that can be addressed, you know, which – you know, I'm not suggesting uh, giving advice to, to Marty Walsh and the NHLPA, but, you know, I, I don't think the owners would ever uh, consider lumping in $650 million from Seattle in one lump sum into HRR. But what might happen is that is an expansion fee. It's amortized, I'm sure, for tax purposes over a number of years. And maybe that $650 million expansion fee can be amortized over a 25-year period of time where $30 million of that HR, you know, $30 million a year gets added to HRR. It's not going to make a huge change to HRR, but it might be a negotiating point to increase, to increase the amount of HRR that the players are entitled to 50%. Do you think that the owners have any interest in doing that, though? Like, I, I, nope. I, 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 100% I'm no. I'm listening to this, and I... And I and I and I I'll be quite blunt, Anton. I think to myself, I'm, and I haven't been in in one of these meetings. I've never, you know, I've always been on the other side of the doors at the board of governors. But I'm pretty sure that um, that this that the the conversation that revolves around how do we get more money in the players' jeans has probably never happened uh, in the history of, uh, of it, the NHL and the and the board of governors meeting. And it won't happen going forward. And you know, basically. My contention for the last 10 years, uh, and I've had numerous discussions with people at the NHLPA and and uh, with Don Fear, is, is changing the dynamics of how the NHLPA and the NHL work. Uh, it's always been a very conflicted, uh, you know, two rams butting heads type of relationship. And I think it's been uh, completely counterproductive, especially since 2005 when the in my opinion, the CBA is actually 50% CBA, which is a union document, and 50% a partnership agreement, which basically distributes revenues. And uh, mm-hmm. my point from that point on, my, my, my take from that point on, is the NHLPA needs a better seat at the table. It's not just a union. It's actually a partner in this business. And it's a business that I believe has not grown um, equally with other sports in North America and has actually lagged behind. And I think the numbers actually show that, notwithstanding that the NHL talks about increased revenues every year. Well, when you add, you know, this consumer price index to revenues, you, you actually do have growth every year. It doesn't mean that you're performing well. Um, it just means that you're growing incrementally, whereas the other sports have grown exponentially. And part of that, is I think that the Players Association hasn't held Gary Bettman and the NHL office accountable for a lack of growth. That's what needs that 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 is what will increase salaries for the players. Actual real growth at levels higher than what mm-hmm. the NHL has proposed uh, or has um, produced um, till now. That's that's where the growth is going to come. So there, uh, Marty Walsh will be able to nibble 
along the outside of the sandwiches and might get some concessions from the NHL. But the real growth is getting revenues to grow by billions of dollars annually rather than by tens of thousands or tens of millions, which has historically been that case. And, uh, you know, the the seat of the table is uh, if you're you're going to be a 50-50 HRR partner, make sure that you've got a seat at the table to make those decisions. And be creative. I'm getting there, I, I gotta. Yeah, that's that, go ahead, that's go ahead. That, that's that's the seat that they need at the table. The NHLPA needs to be more actively Don't, involved with the growth of the sport. Yeah. Don't disagree. Um, we got to bracket the conversation. Um, but uh, I, I just don't know that the NHLPA is in a, has any type of leverage to get themselves to that seat. And and this is probably for a bigger conversation. I don't know that they have the appetite to have that fight and do what it would take to be successful to have that fight, given the nature of how short an NHL player's career um, is. Let's let's pause that conversation and, and pick it up. You've got some golf to watch, uh, and I've got to move on and, and bring Bruce Boudreau to the, the program here in a couple of moments. Anton, it's been great catching up. That was uh, eye-opening and enlightening and educational, and thankfully, you can talk like an actuary because I can't. Uh, thanks so much, pal. I really appreciate this. Always a pleasure, Jeff. There he is, Anton Thun, uh, former NHL player agent and uh, one of the smartest people about hockey business you will meet. Uh, on that, we'll pause. We'll come back with uh, Bruce Boudreau from the NHL Network, former NHL coach. A little tour around the NHL with specific focus. That was a fascinating conversation with Anton. I could do stuff like that uh, all day, and we probably should do more of it here on the program. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Bruce Boudreau coming up next, former NHL coach, focus on the Stanley Cup final in moments. Merrick show across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Back in a moment. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. We cherish every moment we get to talk to Bruce Boudreaux, so let's get right to him from the NHL Network. Gabby, how are you today? I'm doing good, Jeff. How's yourself? Uh, I'm doing well, and thankfully we have a series. Uh, thanks to, to Carter Verhage and and Matthew Kachuk and Sergei Bobrovsky, uh, who were exceptional, all exceptional last night. Uh, we have a series. Uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things here, uh, and I want to start with I want to start with Matthew Kachuk, and I know he's someone that tortures teams. Uh, I know Matthew Kachuk, uh, you know, was was on the Calgary Flames. He tortured a lot of Canadian teams. Uh, I know that he's on the Panthers. He's torturing a lot of torturing a lot of American teams and tortured uh, the Vegas Golden Knights last night. He's tortured the Leafs, tortured the Bruins, and tortured the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, as a coach, what do you see when you see Matthew Kachuk? And knowing the full story, we can include the family as well. Well, I mean, with him, you know, sometimes. You don't even notice him. And then you find out that, I mean, he scores the goal or he sets up the goal um, or his team is behind. He reads the play of the game, but he he does that well too. But he reads the play and the temperature of the game very well. And if his team needs something done that might be a little overboard, a little silly, he does it. If his team needs somebody to go to the front of the net and, interfere with the goalie and, and get him off his game, he does it. I mean, uh, he's, he reminds me of a much better Tiger Williams um, when I played with him back in the day. But, I mean, it's, he's, uh, uh, he's just – and he's a good chirper. I mean, he always has a, a something to say to somebody. He, and he'll stand up for what he does. I mean, he'll fight anybody. I mean, I've seen him uh, fight a lot of guys. <clears throat> and protecting his teammates, and people feel bigger around him. Um, I mean, uh, you just look at Calgary this year. I mean, uh, uh, they didn't have that one guy that when things weren't going well to help turn the game around. And that's, you know, uh, and that's what he does. That's why he's so valuable, and yet he still picks up 100 points. So, I mean, guys like him are few and far between. Uh, there's another one in Ottawa, but his name is Kachuk, too. And so, I mean, these guys, 
uh, are very valuable, <laughs> and and they're guys everybody wants. I mean, to me, they're untradeable guys because uh, they only make your team better. They they do, and the the thing that impresses me about Matthew Kachuk, and that's a really interesting uh, an interesting note about uh, about Tiger Williams as well. Um, the thing that that I, I I still look at Matthew Kachuk, and I I can't quite wrap my head around it, other than a he's a Kachuk, and b he competes, um, you know maybe harder than anybody on the ice at the time that he's on. Um, he's not the fastest skater. Uh, he's not the most graceful skater to watch get around the ice. Uh, he doesn't have anywhere close to the hardest shots. Like when you look at all the things that go into making a hockey player. There's not one of those things, you know, skating, shooting, passing. There's not one of those things other than his competitive spirit that really distinguishes himself. You know what I mean, Gabby? Like, there's not one thing that stands out like, oh, man, this guy's got blazing speed. This guy's got a rocket of a shot. But this guy, A, knows how to play competes hard like when you when you look at his game like not one thing stands out other than the fact that he's just a great hockey player gabby but not one thing jumps out at you no his hockey sense is above way above normal and but you can't sort of register that on a scale you know and his character is way above normal now i mean depending on who the gm is i mean what you put more stock into when you're drafting the put it in, oh, man, this guy can skate, he can shoot, he's tough. But to me, hockey sense and character are no, number one and number two. If you got those two things, you know, I mean, you're usually going to get a really good hockey player somewhere down the road. What do you see in Vegas? Like I, when when we look at the Vegas Golden Knights, we look at the blue line, and you know, like everyone is six foot three or six foot four, or in Nick Hague's case, six foot six. And we look at the forwards, and it's like it's like this perfect puzzle, and all the pieces fit, and everybody has a role, and everybody has an identity. What do you see when you watch Vegas play, Gabby? Well, it was interesting because I got a chance to watch them live last night, and um, uh, I've always from TV and everything, it, you, you know their balance is great. They have no fear of putting the fourth line out against any line, um, and, they, and, it, and it works out so well because they can put the fourth line um, in the defensive zone faceoffs and use any one of the other three lines offensively uh, in the offensive zone. So, I mean, that works out great. The 6D work out great. I mean, if you look at the balance, it's not, not like in Dallas, Heiskanen played 30 minutes. You don't see the 30-minute player yeah. In Vegas, because it's unnecessary. Um, the discipline, uh, they're the least penalized team in the league. But one of the things that really stood out for me last night, even though they didn't win, is they are a great passing team. It reminded me of playing the Canadians in the 70s. The Canadians, one of the things that was great, they could they, they passed the puck. It was tape to tape all night long. Whereas I would watch Florida in the first mm. two periods or the first two-thirds of the game or three-quarters of the game, whatever you want to say. You know, they're making passes. They're getting good chances, but some of them are in their feet. They're mishandled. You watch Vegas. The outlet passes are tape to tape to tape. And they, they uh, uh, when you do that, you look faster than you really are, even though they're a very fast team, especially up the middle. Um, but, I mean, uh, everything works. I mean, and that's one of the reasons they've scored so many goals in these playoffs. I mean, their passing is great, and uh, and when you can do that, you have you have an offense that can play either way, physical or off the rush. And they've really uh, off the rush had an awful lot more chances than Florida this series. You know, there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of people in Vegas that uh, like the, every time, anytime uh, a team wins a Stanley Cup, like whether you cheer for the team or not, uh, there's usually a couple of people on every team that you're really happy for. Uh, because a certain narrative or story ends. And if Vegas is successful here, and if Vegas wins the Stanley Cup, uh, one, and you can relate to this, having coached a number of years uh, in the American League, uh, kind of like Bruce Cassidy as well, uh, I'll be very happy for Bruce Cassidy if uh, if Vegas wins here. I'll also be really happy for Jack Eichel, uh, who heard a lot of things about him and his game 
uh, with the Buffalo Sabres. There was a controversy about spinal fusion versus artificial disc replacement. Uh, and Dr. Prusmak, and they had to get a, had to trade him to, to another team to, so he can get the surgery that he wanted. Um, both are kind of redemption stories uh, in a lot of ways. You know, it, it didn't work out with Boston. I know Cassidy was horribly disappointed uh, to, to, to get fired the way that he did. Uh, ends up in Vegas, and here he is a couple of wins away from the Cup. Um, it didn't work out with the Buffalo Sabres, with Jack Eichel. And Elliot and I sat down with Bruce last week in Vegas, and he talked about his conversation with Jack and essentially said, look, guy, you and me are tied at the hip because our stories are more similar than they are different. Do you have a thought on both Bruce Cassidy and also Jack Eichel, Gabby? Well, with Bruce, it's easy because we were teammates for a couple of years, and I, I know him quite well. Um, uh, really, sm- He was a really smart defenseman. As a matter of fact, I mean, the listeners probably don't remember him, but he played very similar to Shea Theodore. That was Bruce Cassidy when he was junior and his first couple of years pro when, until he uh, hurt his knees really badly and had to end his career short. But always very cerebral player, very smart. Um, and if you talk to him, he's very analytically, you, you know, you can talk to him about any little point in the game because he's been a studier of the game. But uh, and I, I, I really like him. Um, uh, so, I mean, as a friend and as a, as a um, let's just say a competitor, uh, when you're going against him, you mm-hmm. always know that you have to play the right way or his, cause his team is going to play the right way. I mean, quite frankly, uh, we copied or I've copied a lot of the things that, uh, even though I'm much older than Bruce, when you evolve every year as a coach, you look at who's doing the best at what, and I've copied a lot of his yeah. defensive uh, systems, uh, up. And so, I mean, I always did, uh, we played the very same way, maybe with a little bit different uh, uh, players involved, but we tried to play the same way uh, as he does. But that's uh, uh, that's the great thing about Bruce. As for Jack Eichel, I think it's all about redemption. He was asked to do be a totally different player in Buffalo. He was the savior. He was he was compared every yeah. moment to Connor McDavid all the time. And when the numbers weren't uh, uh, you know equating to what Connors were. Everybody was saying that he was such a failure. He was selfish. He was this. He was that. And I watched him really close last night. He he, he plays a really good 200-foot game. He was always back. He was either leading the rush, and then he'd get to be the third man high in the same scenario, which is why that line works really well. I think there's no pressure on him to do um, there's pressure on him because his name is Jack Eichel, but there's no pressure on him because there's so many veteran leaders there. You got to think they've got that the original six that have been there, and since then they've added Petrangelo, they've added Stone. They actually for a year or two had Pacioretty. They had all of these leaders. Now they've got ten or eleven leaders on that team. They don't need Eichel to be the guy so he can be himself. And what he is is himself is a pretty damn good hockey player. You know, you know what I'm really I'm really glad about is that nobody tried to. This is going to sound weird, Gabby. Nobody tried to fix Eichel because when you look at like when you look at his skating style, you look at how he moves around the. Nobody else moves like that. Nobody else skates like no. that. Like other players will have, you know, both hands high on the stick. Like that's that that's there are players that that play like that. One of my favorites was was Marion Hosa, and he had the hands high on the stick as well. But no one tried to to fix his skating, and his skating is exceptional. But Gabby, he doesn't look like anybody else. Like you could point if there was no number and name played on, you could still be able to identify Jack Eichel just from the first couple of strides. Yeah, it's like. He's not a heavy skater. Like he floats on the ice, and his zero to sixty is really quick. And because he carries the puck so far in front of him, he can easily make those plays early to deke around guys and to go around guys. And he does it, and it looks so effortlessly mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, really impressed with him. Uh, again, they lost last night, but I mean, the, the skill, the pass to Marcia, so um, for Marchessault's goal. His vision, I mean, all of that yeah. stuff is, is quite exceptional. Uh, what do you look for in Game 4? we got about a minute left here, Gabby. What do you look for in Game 4? Florida's made this a series. There's intrigue. We know we're going back to Vegas for five. What do you look for on Saturday? 
Well, I look for Vegas to when to come out and not play um, pensive at the start. I mean, uh, they they were waiting for the floor to push at the beginning, and and Florida gave it to them. I think uh, you're going to see more of the game six versus Dallas. Uh, kind of game coming from Vegas. And unfortunately for Florida, I mean, I think their bodies are getting worn down. I mean, I may be way off base, but this is just what I see. The guys, it seems like a new guy gets hurt every game. They're playing so hard, and they don't have yeah. the bench that that uh, Vegas has. So they're overusing an awful lot of guys. So it's uh, um, even though they played a much smarter game last night, and the only way they could win, is having great goaltending and playing smarter like they did. I don't know if it's sustainable, if they can keep it up. But I, I right. would think if I was sitting in Vegas' uh, locker room, I'd be saying, let's win this one. We will win game five and win the cup at home. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm sure that's the theme. Um, Gabby, you're out of time. Always a pleasure. Enjoy the weekend. Uh, enjoy game four, uh, and we'll catch up real soon. Thanks always for this, pal. I will, and tell Elliot to wear a non-purple suit tomorrow. Thank you. No, he, he he's auditioning for the next Batman remake. He's going for a Batman villain look. That's what I'm I'm convinced that uh, that Elliot is going for here. Uh, that was Bruce Boudreaux from the uh, the NHL Network. Thanks to him. Thanks to Anton Thun, Ken Weeb, and the aforementioned Elliot Lance Kennedy, General Nick, Matt Marchese, the brain trust of this show. The program returns on Monday. Have a great weekend.